0: propitiation. That is quite a word. That's one of those words that I feel like we hear it in church and when we hear it we just sort of we nod along gravely. It's a very serious word. It must be it's five syllables long and you know we sort of metaphorically stroke our chins, all sort of knowing what it means, and then we go on about our business without really trying to give it too, too much thought, because we probably know it's connected to Jesus' death and the idea of sacrifice somehow, but we aren't exactly sure how to define it. It's not a common English word at all. I mean, Tristan was reading it a few moments ago and he paused and pronounced it very carefully. And I don't blame him for that because it's just not something that we typically use. When's the last time you used the word propitiation? (laughs) When's the last time you heard it used outside of a sermon or a Bible class? And for that matter, we don't actually use it in, in sermons or Bible classes all of that often. So what does it mean? Just in terms of the English word, this English term propitiation, it's the act of gaining or regaining the favor or goodwill of someone or something, appeasement. Now, that's something we can at least understand in plain English. And if we didn't realize the connection before, we can probably fill in the blanks here that if we're trying to gain or regain someone's favor, someone's goodwill, that someone that we're talking about is God. So when we're talking about propitiation, if we want to define that in short, it's the appeasement of God. But even when we define it that way, that automatically raises a few questions. Why exactly does God need to be appeased in the first place? And what is it exactly that appeases him? And why does that matter for us? We really need to answer those questions if we're going to understand the significance of this word, propitiation. So let's talk a bit about why God needs to be appeased. To appease someone is to placate them. It's to conciliate them. It's to pacify their wrath. So propitiation presupposes that God needs to be appeased in the first place, right? That he is wrathful and we need to do something to regain his favor, his goodwill. So if God is wrathful, what does it mean when we talk about God's wrath? And it's worth taking a step back here and recognizing that propitiation is a common idea, a common term in essentially every world religion, whether we're talking ancient or modern. It's a common religious concept. Pagan gods needed to be propitiated too because they often became wrathful with human beings, and because they were wrathful, as a consequence, they needed to be appeased. After all, you want to stay on the good side of the gods, right? So if you've lost their favor, well, you need to do something to, to get it back, something to pacify them. But pagan gods were notoriously capricious. They were arbitrary. You had no idea, and I mean this is even from the standpoint of of paganism, right? You had no idea really why they would do something that they did. No idea what it would be that would lose their favor, what you could do to regain their favor. Oftentimes, even from the pagan point of view, they didn't take very much interest at all in the affairs of humanity. Only when they, well, either they actively wanted to mess with humans in some way because some pagan gods did that, or when human beings made them angry in some way. And if that happened, they lashed out with consequences. They took their wrath out on human beings. But the anger of pagan gods was totally unpredictable. You didn't know uh, when or why they might become wrathful. That's in sharp contrast with God's wrath the way that it's portrayed in Scripture. Now, we normally think of wrath as a bad thing. And when we're talking about pagan gods, it is a bad thing. And when we're talking about our own wrath, our own anger, well, usually, to be frank, it's a bad thing for us, too. But in Scripture, God's wrath refers to his reaction to sin. A good example is in Deuteronomy chapter 9 and verse number 9. It says there, I was afraid of the anger and hot displeasure that the Lord bore against you, so that he was ready to destroy you. This is Moses speaking here, and this is in the context of him recounting that story of the golden calf. And you remember, God became angry, he became wrathful with Israel. Moses said he was afraid he was so angry that he was going to destroy them. Why was it that God was angry? Well, it's because he's a jealous God and because his people were going after false gods. They were going after idols. They were engaged in sin, in other words. The whole point is, God's wrath is not arbitrary. God doesn't just fly off the handle. God's wrath is tied to his nature. The anger, the wrath of pagan gods, had nothing to do with sin. Now, of course, I'm not saying that pagans didn't have any concept of right and wrong, because they did. They had their own morality codes. But it didn't have anything to do with the gods. Right and wrong was the realm of philosophers in the Greco-Roman world. The gods, well, the gods could be pretty immoral themselves. They did a lot of bad things, even from human standpoint. If you've ever, uh, you know, if you ever studied any Greek mythology, think back to some of those stories. Go back and read them. You know what I'm, I'm talking about here. But in contrast to that, the God of the Bible is the Holy One. He is moral. In fact, morality, right and wrong, flows out of his very nature. So his wrath is a necessary consequence of sin. And I bring all this up because we have to understand God's wrath in the first place to be able to understand propitiation. We often talk about God as being love, and that's true. But God's wrath is every bit as inherent in his character, in his nature, as his love is. So much so that sometimes in Scripture, uh, the writers will talk about the wrath. They won't use any sort of qualification. It's just the wrath. And when they're doing that, they're talking about God's wrath. It doesn't even need to specify it because this is his righteous uh, wrath that's poured out on sin. Think about John the Baptist talking to his audience when you know some of those religious elites from Jerusalem come out to to hear him and he basically says what are you doing here brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come he's talking about the wrath of god or think about jesus foretelling the destruction of jerusalem this is luke chapter 21 there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people that's god's wrath poured out against the jews so In short, God's wrath means that he hates, intensely hates, all sin. And that's why we lose favor with him, because we've sinned, and that violates his nature. And that's why he needs to be propitiated. That is, something needs to be done in order to regain his favor, to be back in that right standing with God. God's not... Moody. God is not uh, provoked like pagan deities. God is holy. God is just. He responds to sin with absolute consistency. That's the cause of his wrath. And that's why he needs to be appeased. So God needs to be placated. If we've sinned, God needs to be placated in order for us to be right with him. How does that happen? How is God appeased? How is God propitiated? And again, I think to understand this, we really need to understand the contrast of the God of the Bible with ancient pagan concepts of the gods. Pagan religions were based on reciprocity rather than morality. That is, I want to have the favor of the gods, right? Who wouldn't want that? You want to be on the right side. You want them to to bless you. You want them to do things for you. So if I want them to do things for me, well then I need to do things for them. It's a very sort of humanistic or, or mechanistic even understanding. It's it's all about a, a, a quid pro quo. I scratch the god's back and he scratches mine, uh, so to speak. Here, so to ensure that I do stuff for them, and that means I try to do in the first place things to get on their good side. So I make some big donation to the temple, or I promise to go and and serve at the temple, or uh, I give gifts, offerings in whatever way. And if they're angry with me for whatever reason, I might not know exactly why they're angry with me, but if it becomes evident they are angry, I have to do something to appease them. So then I go and maybe I pay a price of some sort at the temple. Or I do something for the God, some some great deed in his name, on his behalf. Or most commonly, I make an offering. I make a sacrifice of some sort. That's what propitiation is. But with arbitrary deities, the price you have to pay is arbitrary too, right? I don't know exactly why they do what they do. I don't know why they might get mad at me. And then I don't always know what they want. It's sort of made up as we go along here. So maybe I think they want some sort of uh, meat or sweets. Or maybe I think that they want me to go out and do something for them. You know, maybe they want me to go and into glorious battle on their behalf. Or maybe in some cases, maybe they even want human sacrifice. Now that's not so much uh, Greek or Roman religion, but uh, you could think here of this idea we have of primitive tribes throwing people in volcanoes. Uh, You could think even here of the more uh, systematic, ritualistic human sacrifice of the Aztecs because they were trying to get their gods on their side. The point is, when we think about propitiation from the pagan point of view, this is what we're talking about. But now I want you to consider, in contrast, propitiation, appeasing God from the standpoint of Scripture. Sacrifice is the universal language of ancient religion, and that's whether we're talking about grain offerings or fruit offerings or incense or animals most commonly. Paganism and Judaism both had this in common that sacrifice was at the heart of their religion. But in contrast to paganism, where we're left in the the dark to sort of just grope about and try to guess at what the gods may want to appease their arbitrary wrath, God doesn't leave us in the dark. And in fact, he's declared openly what sort of sacrifice he wants. Not only does he tell us what he wants, scripture tells us that he actually provides that sacrifice, Leviticus chapter 17 and verse number eleven, <clears throat> God says, and this is all in the context in Leviticus of the whole system of sacrifice in general. For the life is in the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. God not only says what type of sacrifice he wants he actually puts it here he provides that sacrifice and we might think here in a more personal way think about the story of, of Abraham and Isaac Abraham's told to go and sacrifice Isaac and of course he does that based on faith he doesn't know exactly what's going to happen but Isaac asks him where's the where's the animal he, I guess he's starting to think something's up here it's a little suspicious but hey where's the animal to offer and what does Abraham say the Lord will provide But that's this idea that runs through Scripture that, in a sense, God is the one providing the sacrifices here. A price for sin. Sin causes God to become wrathful. A price for sin then has to be paid in order to propitiate God. And the Old Testament, as we read here in Leviticus 17, verse 11, the Old Testament points out in excruciating bloody detail particularly read Leviticus that it is blood that does that the blood of the lamb in particular now we're gonna talk about atonement that's one of the big words in our book we're gonna talk about atonement in more detail in a couple of weeks so I don't want to step on the toes of that too much but but for now notice that unlike those pagan gods God isn't placated by a bribe God doesn't want us to promise to do something for him God demands the sacrifices, the blood that he's required as a consequence for sin. And, of course, this ultimately points us forward. The law, the Day of Atonement in particular, is a shadow of Jesus' sacrifice. So this points us forward to Jesus' work in particular, and that brings us really to the importance of propitiation and to our text in Romans chapter 3 that was read just a few minutes ago. We don't like to talk about God's wrath too much these days. That's not something that makes for the warm fuzzy sort of uh preaching and the good feelings that everybody likes to have. And and it just seems so it seems so unenlightened, so medieval to us this idea that God's looking to punish us. That's that's not the God of, of love that I know and that I serve. We've already explained that a lot of that flows from a misunderstanding of what God's wrath is that that comes out of his nature. It's not arbitrary. This is a, a product of God's holiness. But some people wish to avoid this idea of God's wrath altogether because it makes us uncomfortable. So in Romans 3, in verse number 25 that we read earlier, this word, propitiation, it appears here. Uh, talking about the redemption that comes through Jesus Christ, and Jesus, it says, was put forward by God as a propitiation by his blood. So there's that idea of sacrifice again. But because this idea of God's wrath is so uncomfortable, some people don't even like to translate this as propitiation here. The noun, translated propitiation here in the Greek, it only occurs one other time in all the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 9 verse 5. And incidentally, if you really want to understand this idea, if we had more time, go read Hebrews because it helps to connect, connect some of these dots. But in Hebrews 9 verse 5, this is the only other place it occurs, and there it's translated as mercy seat because it's talking about the cover on the Ark of the Covenant, where the blood was sprinkled on the Day of Atonement, which, again, gets us to the concept of atonement that we'll look at in a couple of weeks. But some have argued, as I say, this word only appears one other time, there it's mercy seat, so we don't have a lot to go on. Some have argued that this should be translated not as propitiation, but as expiation here. The Greek word can also mean that, although... It's less commonly used for that, but maybe that doesn't help us too much because expiation is an English word like propitiation. It's another one that we don't use very often. We probably don't really know what that means. Propitiate always has a person as its object. Expiate always has a thing as its object. So in context, if we're talking about propitiation, God... Is propitiated God is appeased by the sacrifice of Christ but if this is translated as expiation well it's sin that's expiated because to expiate something means that it's extinguished it means that the barrier is removed it means that amends have been made here so the argument on the part of those who want to translate this as expiation is that God's not like those pagan deities. God doesn't get angry like that. God's a loving father. We don't need to propitiate him that way, but we're talking here about how Jesus' death removes that barrier of sin. He's expiated sins for us. I bring all that up because I think that's really a, a false dichotomy, and once we understand what God's wrath really is, we shouldn't be so afraid of it but it also helps all of this sort of fall into place. God doesn't need to be propitiated because he's just an angry guy. God is holy, and God is just, and his wrath is righteous. It flows out of his nature. And he is appeased precisely because that guilt of sin is removed. So You see, my point is expiation, propitiation, those are, those are two sides of the same coin when that guilt of sin is removed god is propitiated that's that's the barrier that causes us to be out of that right relationship with him and that's exactly the argument that romans is making if you flip back to romans chapter 1 and and this is where understanding the you know not just taking a verse or two out of context understanding the whole flow of an argument is so important romans chapter 1 after paul gives all of his salutations here and his introduction his prayer that he makes at the beginning. <clears throat> we probably, almost all of us here, know verses 16 and 17. We know verse 16 by heart. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And then verse 17, 4, and this is why it's powerful, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is the thesis statement of the book of Romans. In other words, this is what the book is all about. The gospel is the power of God to salvation. And the rest of the book is all an expansion of that. It's all Paul explaining what he means. The gospel of Christ is the power of God for salvation. What is salvation? This unit in our one-word book is all about salvation. I wonder if we ever asked that. If you were to just go to a concordance, just read through some passages, It might be a little more difficult to define than you'd expect because salvation is used in about 70 different senses in Scripture, give or take, because fundamentally it just means to be rescued, to be delivered from something, and that could be something spiritual or it could be something pretty mundane, and we use the word saved in that uh, same sense in our own modern society. We talk about being saved in the spiritual sense, but you can be saved by the bell, too, we use saved in a lot of different senses of course we usually mean that in the spiritual sense we're talking here about the big salvation salvation from sin salvation from death but the question is if we need deliverance if we need salvation from sin why are there consequences to sin why do we need to be saved why do we need to be delivered in the first place what are we being saved from, in other words? Well, Paul tells us that in the very next verse. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first, also to the Greek. And then he talks about, in it the righteousness of God is revealed. For, this is why we need to be saved, verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What are we saved from? There's more to salvation than this. But in terms of the argument Paul's making in Romans, what are we saved from? The wrath of God. And that's because our sin brings down his wrath as a natural consequence. And that's the argument that unfolds in these first few chapters. We need to be saved from the wrath of God. The rest of chapter one is all about God's wrath being poured out on the Gentiles. Why? Because they've worshipped the creature instead of the creator. They've done whatever they want to do, in other words. You know, this whole catalog of all of these sins that Paul mentions here. But then he gets to chapter 2, and I'm really loosely paraphrasing Paul here, okay? But his point is, hey, Jews, don't think that you're off the hook because you're God's chosen people. You've sinned too. You haven't kept the law. And so we get to chapter number 3, and his point is, Everyone has sinned. That's verse 23, right? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Gentiles have sinned. Jews have sinned. We all deserve this wrath of God. But, and then we get to our text, God has been propitiated, appeased, his wrath, he's left it off because of the death of Jesus. In verse number 25, he's God has put him forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. He passed over former sins. Implicit here is the idea that the the law lacked something, that those sacrifices that God commanded that those propitiated him in a sense, but they were imperfect, they were incomplete. He passed over sins, he winked at them, as we see elsewhere, but that was only something that was a temporary arrangement. God could allow that in his mercy, in his divine forbearance for a time, but those sacrifices were imperfect. What was missing was that perfect sacrifice that Jesus offered. And here's the point. Here's the the take-home for us tonight. Here is why this is so wonderful. Here's why this matters to us. God himself provided the sacrifice that would placate him. God's wrath is justly deserved because of our sin. He needs to be propitiated. He needs to be appeased. But we couldn't do anything to do that. And so God himself made the way to do that. You see, that whole pagan concept of the gods and what it meant to appease them is turned upside down here. It stands on its head because their whole idea is, what do we need to do to to propitiate the gods? And what we find here is that God propitiates himself for us. He himself set things right. Only he could do it this is all on God's initiative and thus he could both be just last verse here so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus he could be just that is holy upright his righteous wrath is satisfied but also he could be the justifier he set us right with him great 20th century preacher John Stott summed it up this way I love this it's so pithy God himself gave himself to save us from himself. That's a summary. That's what propitiation is. God himself gave himself to save us from himself. Let's not lose sight of God's wrath. As we said, a lot of people don't want to talk about it these days. It's something that makes us uncomfortable. But if we see it in the context of God's nature, it's an important concept because it reminds us that God is holy. God takes sin seriously. But of course, let's not lose sight of the fact that God demonstrates his love for us in Christ. We sang that song right before our lesson, Love Lifted Me. That's exactly what we're talking about. Let's also remember that we can't do anything to propitiate God. We can't appease him. We can't placate him. When we start to think that way, when we start to think, well, what can I do to get on God's good side or what can I do to to receive his favor? What we're doing is we're moving away from the religion of Scripture, the religion God reveals to us, and we're moving to those pagan ideas. Sometimes we're prone to think that way, that that I can somehow do something. We pray like that sometimes. God, if you'll just get me out of this, I'll do this for you. We try to bargain with him. Well, Jesus is already placated. There's only one way to be on that right side of God. We all want to be in his favor. There's only one way to do that. As Paul says there in Romans 3, It's to place your faith in Jesus because he's already propitiated. Now, maybe you're here this evening and there's some sin in your life. Maybe you've been trying to get it all right with God on your own. You don't need to do that. You need to repent and you need to trust in that work that Jesus has already completed. So if you're here this evening and there's some sin in your life that you need to repent of in a public way, we can help you in any way to get back in that right relationship, on that right side of the Lord. It's his invitation while we stand and while we sing.